So Isaiah chapter 52, uh, beginning in verse 13, and then we'll read uh, through the end of the chapter. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. Hear now the word of God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. May God add this, his blessing to the reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we give thanks for your word, for in it we learn of the Lord Jesus Christ and the wonderful plan of redemption. And so now, as you give us the opportunity, in a sense, to eavesdrop on a, on a conversation from within the very heart of God himself, from your own heart, talking of the future suffering of your son. We pray, O Lord, that you would give us wisdom and insight, and that in the light of the fullness of the revelation of your son in history, that you would give us further uh, insight that we might clearly perceive and understand and see the Lord Jesus Christ through the eyes of faith. And that in so doing, O Lord, we would fall upon our faces and we would worship you. We would give thanks for the wonderful plan of redemption as well as the wonderful intercession that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who brings unto us the forgiveness of our sins and the one that gives unto us 
the hope and promise of eternal life. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Isaiah is, uh, has some of the richest treasures in all of the scriptures. It, it prophesies of the coming Davidic heir who was going to take uh, Israel's throne, that the nations would flock to Zion uh, to worship Yahweh, and that the suffering servant uh, would come to deliver Israel. Uh, yet perhaps because of the book's large size, it's, it's uh, 66 chapters, uh, seldom do I hear messages from Isaiah. And so what I want us to do this evening is I want us to look here, perhaps in what we can characterize as the briefest of glimpses uh, at what the prophet has to say about the suffering servant here at the end of chapter 52 and throughout Isaiah chapter 53. And as brief as our glimpse will be, I'm hoping that it will afford us the opportunity to gaze upon the glorious redemption that we have through Christ. Like Moses hid in the, in the cleft of the rock as God passed by, I hope that we'll be able to see uh, a glimpse of the unfurled glory of Christ as we look at him uh, through the lens of Isaiah's prophecy. And that what I want us to do is I want us to look at what Isaiah has to say, obviously, under three headings. The first is I want us to see the intercession of the suffering servant. What was it that the suffering servant was sent to do and what he was going to do? Obviously, this prophecy being written long before Christ actually came in the flesh to carry out his ministry. Secondly, I want us to see what the prophet has to say about imputation. In other words, we can put it in these simple terms. What was the suffering servant going to give uh, unto his bride, unto those whom he was going to save. Uh, and we refer to this language uh, by the language of uh, you know, theology when we say that he was going to impute something to us. He was going to accredit something unto us. And we want to see what the prophet says that is. And then third and finally, we want to ask ourselves, what did the suffering servant actually accomplish? What was he going to accomplish by means of his suffering and his death? So his intercession, the imputation, and then the completion of his work. <clears throat> First, in terms of his intercession, we want to get a brief understanding, just a brief glimpse as to what was going on in the original setting of this prophecy when we take a look at the latter half of 52 and chapter 53. We want to understand first that Isaiah was prophesying in the 8th century B.C. in the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, uh, the, the nation of Israel had been split in two after the reign of Solomon, the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. And Judah, during this time, faced a number of foes, including the northern kingdom of Israel itself, as well as Assyria. And so Isaiah prophesied uh, that the northern kingdom would be taken into exile, and he prophesies this in chapter 36 and chapter 37. And indeed, we know that the northern kingdom was taken away. Isaiah also prophesied of a time when Judah would be taken into exile. And so from, it's from this vantage point, the, the looming specter of exile, being taken away from the presence of God, being hauled away from the land of promise, no longer being able to dwell uh, in the very presence of God in the shadow of the temple. It's from that vantage point that the prophet writes of the suffering servant. The servant would bring justice to the nations, 
We see in Isaiah 42, he would establish a new covenant. The prophet also says in Isaiah 42. In Isaiah chapter 49, the prophet tells us that the suffering servant would become a light unto the Gentiles. And then most importantly here, in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, that the suffering servant would take away the sins of the people. Now, why is it that that the servant would have to take away the sins of the people? Well, within this immediate context, remember, exile looms large on the horizon. Imagine, if you will, we could say it's the 800-pound gorilla uh, in the road uh, as Israel is seeking to have their way. You know, recall in this respect the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant that we read of, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, which stipulated, this is where Moses told the people as they were getting ready to enter into the promised land, so it's the eve of occupying the promised land, the fulfillment of the promises that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that if they were obedient, she would receive blessings. But if Israel was disobedient... There would be consequences. We read in Deuteronomy 28, verses 32 and following, he says, Your sons and daughters will be given to another people, while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all of your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. And so here, you have the prospects of exile there on the horizon. This is something that is going to happen soon. How is it that if Israel was going to be taken away into exile, how would she be delivered from that state? And in fact, when you read, for example, the prophet Ezekiel, he likens Israel's state of exile as being in a graveyard, so much so that he characterizes the nation's existence as a valley of dry bones. And so how is it that Israel would in some way be able to be, dare I say, resurrected from the dead and returned to the land of promise, returned back into the presence of God, returned to the land that was flowing with milk and honey? How would they? How would they, given the fact that they were disobedient, that they were idolatrous, that they were murderous, that they gave little, if any, attention to the Lord, and that whatever attention they did give to him was mere lip service, it was mere formalism. They were guilty of grievous sin, so much so that God said, I'm going to tear you out of the land. The land will vomit you out. Now, by contrast... Notice how Isaiah describes the servant. In Isaiah 52, uh, 52, verse 13, he says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. As we've been studying the book of Proverbs, what lies at the heart of wisdom but a fear of the Lord, a desire to obey him? Such would be the suffering servant. He would be wise. In chapter 53, verse 9, Notice that he is righteous, he's upright, although he had done no violence. Unlike the murderous hordes of Israel 
who were willing to kill for the sake of greed, for the sake of gain, for the sake of advancing their own cause, the suffering servant was completely unlike this. He was not guilty of any violence. We also read in verse 9 that he was truthful, and that the prophet says that there was no deceit found in his mouth. Think of the various ways in which Israel might deceive. And in this particular case, we could say that the, 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 the gravest form of deception was when they would enter into the very presence of God, where they would honor God with their lips, but their hearts would be miles and miles of way embroiled in idolatry, an ultimate form of deception. Not so with the suffering servant. In verse 11, he calls the suffering servant the righteous one, and indeed the servant of God, God Most High. When somebody is righteous, it means that they're in conformity to the law. It means that they obey the law. They're in conformity to this divine standard. In Deuteronomy 6.25, uh, the, the Israelite parents explain to their children that it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all of the laws that our God has given us. And that statement in Deuteronomy 6.25 comes on the heels of the readministration of the law, the Ten Commandments, as well as uh, it comes at the end of chapter 6, which is the administration of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, what Jesus calls the first and greatest commandment. And so here, it would be righteousness for them if they would obey these laws, if they would love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They didn't do this. But the suffering servant would. Perfectly righteous. But moreover, and here I think is where we begin to see the, the Old Testament roots to the passage that we looked at this morning in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, when Paul says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant and was obedient unto the point of death. Verse 12 of chapter 53, Isaiah says that because he poured out his soul unto death, this, as you can see very clearly, is a complete and total antithetical contrast to the people of God whom Isaiah describes in verse 6 of chapter 53 as like sheep that have gone astray and that every single one has turned to his own way. Remember that famous line from the book of Judges, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Once again, that sinful uh, Nature that appeared so vehemently in the book of Judges is once again there in the midst of Israel. And so the prophet explains that the righteous one, the servant, the one chosen by God, would act on behalf of the many. The one acting on behalf of the many. He would intercede on behalf of God's people to redeem them from their covenantally cursed state. He would deliver them from their sins. He would break the bonds of the exile. He would raise them from the dead. He would return them to the land and bring them back into the presence of God. If this is the nature of the intercession 
of the suffering servant, then I would hope that it causes us to reflect upon our own sinfulness. So often it's the case that, uh, you know, our culture around us tells us that we're fine, we're okay. You know, I may not be bad, but I may not be, I may be bad, but I may not be bad as that person over there. Or what happens is that our culture creates new standards of righteousness. We want to do what is right in our own eyes. And you see this in cancel culture, where people out, whether it's in social media or in the legacy media, they will dig into people's past. And if they find what has now been defined as the new unpardonable sin, whatever it may be, then they say, we're going to excommunicate you. We're going to cancel you. We, in regard to this particular uh, belief, are righteous and you are not. You're out. We're in. That's not the way that God's law works. It's not that we can pick and choose and we can say, well, I'm going to focus on this particular command and I do really well here. You know, if you think about it, you know, there's two observations I, I want to I throw out. And the first is, is that if there's any one command that we think at which we really excel, just encourage us, study the larger catechism's exposition of the law. And just see how detailed it is on what constitutes the requirements of the law in terms of what we're supposed to do positively. And then conversely, uh, the things that it tells us we should not do. It, 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 it tells us both things. So that when the law says do not commit adultery, it doesn't just mean not commit adultery. That's what it means negatively. Positively, it means love your wife as Christ has loved the church. It always enjoins both. So that's the first observation is that keeping any one command is quite weighty. And if you begin to think about it, whether we're talking about word, thought, or deed, the demands of the law are significant and they are deep and they are stringent. But then secondly, this is something that I told my class last week. I taught uh, hermeneutics, Bible interpretation at RTS Atlanta. And one of the things I said is that the law requires, as our standards say, perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. You can't say to the law, I've fulfilled most of it, except for maybe this area over here and this area over here. The law is like a mirror. If you crack one part of it, it's ruined. The mirror's no good. You can't say, well, the mirror's just fine except for this hole in the middle of it. Or it's just fine except for this line that runs through it. You break one part of the mirror, however small, the mirror's no good. You get rid of it. Such is the nature of the law. So not only can we not keep it to its demands in terms of being perfect personally obedient and perpetually obedient, but even if we were to keep most of it, to break one part is to break it all. And so in and of ourselves, we have to recognize that essentially if we are you know, separate from Christ, we are incapable of rendering perfect obedience to God, which means that if we were to be living in ancient Israel, we too would have been carried away into exile. And so we have to acknowledge the fact that we need a savior. We need someone to intercede on our behalf, to step into the gap. 
Because at the end of the day, what Israel's exile was ultimately prophetic about is the exile that sinners will live in when they are exiled from the presence of God in uh, the outside the gates of heaven, where the book of Revelation describes the geography of heaven itself as, as those who are united to Christ by faith, living within uh, the walls of New Jerusalem, and the dogs, the sorcerers, the murderers, the adulterers, the liars, all living outside the city. That's the exile. That's the ultimate exile. And if we don't have an intercessor... If we don't have someone to break the bondage of our sin and the demands of the law, we will end up in exile. That's what we have to see. But now we should ask the question, at least, how is it that the suffering servant was going to pull off this, this, this great act of intercession? You know, because we can see clearly the sinfulness of the people. We can see the righteousness, the holy, holiness, and the purity of, of, of the suffering servant. So how do we get, if you will, from his righteousness uh, to the sinful people? What's the means by which the suffering servant actually saves the sinners? This brings us to our second point, which is imputation which ultimately lies at the heart of this passage, the idea that the representative actions of one person can be accredited to somebody else. And this is one of the things that I think it's one of the teachings that often rubs against the grain of our sinful hearts. You know, what, what happens is that, you know, people say, I, I, you know, I don't want to be held accountable for Adam's sin. I wasn't there, I didn't authorize him to represent me, and I would have done something different. And believe it or not, I've heard such claims written by very learned and scholarly people. So this isn't just kind of the average Joe on the street type of response. You know, I've heard it even labeled the authorization principle. We didn't authorize Adam to represent us, which in and of itself is an amazingly arrogant statement filled with a lot of hubris because what it says is, God, you chose wrongly in choosing Adam as my representative. You didn't know that I would have done something different. I mean, think of the hubris. Think of the arrogance. God, you didn't know that I would have done better. (laughs) You know, yes, I know I've often dreamed of it that if only I were there and I had a chainsaw, just cut that thing down, no tree to worry about, everybody's fine, everything's good. But what they don't realize is that if they reject Adam's representation in the garden and the sin that God accredits to us because of his sinful action, because we weren't there, then you have to reject Christ's representation in his life death, and resurrection, because we too were not there. Reject Adam, you have to reject Christ. But if you recognize that in Adam, we are all sinners, and that we are guilty for Adam's sin as well as our own sin, then that means that the only way for somebody to deliver us is if 
the suffering servant is fully obedient to the law of God as well as suffers the curse of the covenant on our behalf so that God can then accredit and he can account those actions of the suffering servant, the one to the many. And this is what Isaiah talks about. Remember, the servant is wise, he's truthful, he's righteous and obedient, whereas the people are collectively disobedient and thus in exile. But notice, therefore, how it is that Isaiah describes the servant unfolding his work and addressing this problem of sin and exile. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed." He also says in verse 6 that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now we may not realize it here, but what Isaiah is talking about is he's using the language of the Day of Atonement all the way back from Leviticus chapter 16. If you remember on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, Aaron was supposed to take the two scapegoats and he was supposed to take one goat and sacrifice it and then the other goat he was supposed to take his hands place them upon the head of the goat and confess over the goat the sins of the nation. And then once the sins of the nation had been confessed over the goat, what was symbolized in that whole process is that the goat would then be carrying the sins of the people and the goat would then be led outside the camp so that the goat would carry the people's sins away. Later in Jewish practice, they would give the goat a shove off a cliff to make sure that the goat couldn't come back. Because can you imagine, oh no, here comes the goat and he's got our sins. Somebody quick, get a bow and arrow and shoot it before it comes back in the camp. So they just give it a swift nudge off the edge of the cliff and then, hey, no goat, no sin, we're good for this year. Well, here, what what Isaiah is doing is he's using this very language of bearing sin, carrying sin. Notice that the suffering servant is not himself guilty of sin. Rather, God places the burden of our sins upon the suffering servant so that now the suffering servant himself is carrying our sin. He carries our sin. And thus the punishment due to the people of God. In other words, God legally transfers the guilt and the penalty from one person to another, and in this case, from the people of God collectively to the suffering servant. In other words, Jesus pays our debt. He carries our sin. He bears the curse. But notice that the servant does not merely wipe the slate clean to return us to the garden where we would face Adam's choice once again and that we would have a mulligan, a do-over. I'm going to wipe the slate clean and give you a second chance. You know, it's like uh, we regularly do this with the kids. Uh, You know, they were supposed to clean up the dishes and clean up the kitchen, uh, Last night, and that didn't happen. We wake up this morning, and, you know, everything's a mess. And so I told my kids today, all right, you got a second chance today. Because they asked for our forgiveness. You got a second chance. 
your mom and I are going to go over here and we're going to sit down and we're going to wait and you guys are going to clean everything up. And they did. They got a second chance. They got a do-over. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus does not give us a do-over. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to forgive you of your sin, put you back in the garden, and let's see what happens again. Notice what the righteous suffering servant accomplishes in Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. If a lack of knowledge, if a lack of obedience is the impelling cause of Israel's exile, then the suffering servant will be knowledgeable. He will be obedient. Idolaters lack knowledge. Yahweh possesses knowledge, whereas the people don't. And so the servant receives the anointing of the spirit of knowledge, according to Isaiah 11.2, the fear of the Lord, and this disposition enables him to produce obedience. So the suffering servant's perfect law-keeping, then, his perfect obedience is accounted to us, which is what the prophet means when he says he will make many to be accounted righteous. So that when God looks upon his people, all he sees is the perfect obedience of his son because that has been accredited to us. To put it in the simplest of terms, the, the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, is obedient and then he takes off his coat of obedience and he drapes it over us so that all the Father sees is his perfect obedience and righteousness. We're not merely innocent. God doesn't say you're innocent of sin, but rather he says you're righteous. Remember what I said about the definition of righteousness? It is to be in conformity with the standard. It means you have completely fulfilled the law. What an amazing blessing that when God looks upon us, he says you're perfectly righteous. But not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And we know that the servant is righteous is because he says here, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. What does that mean? Well, what's interesting is that the Greek translation of the Old Testament adds an extra word, and I think it was a clarification, an interpretive clarification, when it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see light. He shall see light which is an Old Testament metaphor throughout the Psalms for resurrection. If death is the descent into darkness, well then, to live is to see light. And so when the prophet says that out of the anguish of his soul he shall see light, it's a shadowy way of saying that the suffering servant, because of his righteousness, because of his holiness, death will have no claim upon him. Death will have no claim upon him. And God the Father will raise him from the dead. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see light. And so the servant is righteous, and so therefore God raises him from, uh, to life, and it's because of this and his perfect law-keeping status that is accredited to his people, that we too have right to the same blessings. 
I think this is what ultimately lies behind Paul's statement in Romans 4, 24 and 25. Jesus, our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If Paul had a portion of the Old Testament open when he was writing Romans, especially 4, 5, uh, it was the scroll of Isaiah. It was the scroll of Isaiah opened. And so what this means is that Christ has only done what uh, we cannot do, even in a sin-free state. And so this means that only by resting in the finished work of Christ, his perfect obedience, can we receive his sin-bearing and his perfect righteousness by faith alone. No amount of moral effort on our part can satisfy the law's demands. And I suspect that this is something that the Lord essentially calls us to each and every week. He calls us into his presence to remind us, my son has paid the debt. My son has borne the curse because of his great love for you. He has fulfilled the law's demands. He has silenced the thunder and the dark clouds of Sinai. We need that regular reminder If not weekly, I think daily, because our hearts are so prone to saying, oh, Lord, let me try to do something to to appease your anger, because I, I know I've sinned and I need to do something. And yet, what does Jesus say? He says, take upon me, take upon yourself my yoke, for it is easy and light. It's because Christ has completed it all. He has paid it all. And so what this means is that we have to rest in Christ's finished work. It's one of the phrases that I love out of the Westminster Confession of Faith when it says, what are the principal acts of saving faith? Resting, receiving, and accepting. Those are all passive actions. We don't work to earn our salvation. We rest in the finished work of Christ. We don't try harder to be saved. We receive what God has given us in Christ. And and we don't try to please God to say, if I do this, then will you save me? We simply open our hands and we accept the gift of salvation that comes only through Christ. We must rest in Christ's finished work, rest and joyfully so in his imputation. But last but not least, we want to ask the question, what precisely has Christ accomplished? What did he complete through his sin-bearing and perfect obedience to the law? Notice what Isaiah says in verses 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, by his obedience, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, once again, what's the therefore, therefore? Just as we talked about this morning in in Philippians chapter 2, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, I will give unto him the name that is above every name. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I mean, the first thing I would want to say is, I swear, Paul was reading Isaiah 53 when he was writing Romans, when he was writing Philippians 2. But chances are, what's interesting about that is in the ancient world, they had the capacity to memorize massive amounts of scripture. Ulrich Zwingli memorized the whole New Testament in Greek. 
I know one of my professors or one of my colleagues at another institution, uh, you know, he, one of his professors was a Jewish rabbi, had the entire Old Testament memorized in Hebrew. Entire Old Testament memorized in Hebrew. So I can't help but think that in, in, on the desk of his mind, Paul has Isaiah just laid open there and he's just working from Isaiah as he's, as he's writing his epistles. But in particular, I think in terms that are evocative of the Old Testament law, when he talks about a portion and dividing the spoil with the strong, these are the blessings of the covenant from Deuteronomy 28. These are also the blessings of the of sorry Deuteronomy 17, where the king's representative obedience or disobedience either resulted in blessing or cursing for the people. But here's there's a significant element for which we must account. And that the Old Testament Deuteronomic blessings, long life in the land, verdant agriculture, fruitful wombs, military might, was all but a foreshadow of something greater to come. In a word, the earthly blessings of Deuteronomy 28 foreshadows heaven itself. So the suffering servant doesn't merely return us to the garden or merely to the promised land, but rather he secures for us the blessings of eternal life. As Paul says so, so beautifully, but, but briefly in Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass has led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Or again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 21, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew sin, knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Christ secures is eternal life. We can rest in the knowledge that Christ has secured the blessings of heaven itself. And that we are regenerated by the Spirit and united to Christ. And when God does this by his grace, it means that we can breathe the fresh air of the new heavens and the new earth, even though we dwell in the midst of this present evil age. Do we live in the knowledge of this joy? Do we live in the knowledge and celebrate the hope of eternal life? Do we live as royalty, as sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Or do we live as the world, like wandering sheep, each going his own way, doing what is right in our own eyes? Do we live as those without hope, mourning as the world mourns, or in the face of tragedy, say especially the tragedy of death, that we are at the mercies of the fates or of an aimless and meaningless turn of events, or that we have hope in the gospel of Christ? You know, one of the things that I've done on the, on, in the heels of my father's death is that I've received a number of condolences from many people, and I'm so grateful for that. But especially for those who do not know the gospel, I say thank you so much for your kind words, but praise God for the hope of the gospel and the salvation that comes only through Christ and the joy of the resurrection of the dead that I will see my father again. Some of the last words that I told my dad as I stood by his bedside is I said, you're going to be in the presence of Christ soon. Rejoice. It's happy for you. Sad for us, dad, but happy for you. And I said, you won't even notice and the rest of us will be there. I said, so dad, I'll see you before the throne of grace. I'll see you again. 
And that's a hope that we all have because of what the suffering servant has done, because of his curse-bearing work, because of his perfect obedience. Our hope isn't merely a well-intentioned but nevertheless empty emotional sedative to, to somehow deaden the suffering and pain, but rather it's a present reality anchored in Christ's perfect suffering and obedience, and it ones, ones that, it's one that assures us that we will be delivered from our foes and that the, and we will cross the threshold through the waters of that heavenly Jordan and safely reach the shores of Zion because of what Christ has done. Beloved, this is but the briefest of glimpses at the glories of this passage, the intercession, the imputation, and the completion of the work of the suffering servant. Rest in Christ's finished work. Praise God that the prophet Isaiah was able to hear that conversation going on in eternity and that he looked back upon those words that he heard and recorded them down so that as he looked forward, he was looking forward with eager anticipation of the unfolding and the revelation of God in Christ. But we no longer look forward. We can look back upon the finished work of Christ and we can rejoice. And we can look to the horizon and eagerly anticipate the return of Christ so that the dead in Christ will rise and that we will dwell eternally in the presence of God and the Lamb. Therefore, beloved, praise God for the wonderful mercies that he's poured out upon us in Christ, and live in a manner befitting of inhabitants of the new heavens and the new earth, one marked by righteousness, but also one marked by joy. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have sent your Son, the suffering servant, one who has borne the curse that was due to us, one who suffered for our sake. And we even know, O Lord, that it was your will to crush him. It was your perfect plan to crush him and that he was willing to submit to your plan to bring about our redemption, to suffer the curse, to fulfill the law for every single jot and tittle that we might have life and have it abundantly and eternally. What an amazing gift, O Lord, you have given us in Christ. May we treasure this gift above all other things. May we seek to share the blessings of this gift with others. Fill our hearts with joy so that our joy would overcome whatever fears we have of sharing the truth of the gospel with others. O Lord, comfort us in those moments when we are grieving in the face of death. Comfort us, O Lord when we are ashamed and carrying about the burden of our sin. Fill our hearts with joy and hope in knowing that Christ has borne our burdens and that out of the anguish of his soul, he has indeed seen, he has been raised from the dead. Give us that hope that we too shall be raised from the dead on the last day because of his work. We pray that you would write these truths on the walls of our hearts and that we would not forget. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.